Welcome to Campfire Stories. On episode two, Stacy and I converse with Chief Digital Evangelist Vela Afshar. Wow, this was such an honor to get to talk with him. Um, what a vast amount of knowledge that he has in marketing, digital, social, um, a little bit of AI he gets into. This was uh, a great episode. Yeah, truly was a great conversation and um, truly, truly appreciate just deep diving into the breadth of knowledge he has. You know, he's very transparent. He's very honest. Um, and you'll see in this episode, the, the plethora of topics we cover um, are going to be beneficial uh, for you, the listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit longer than our typical episode, okay. but... But definitely worth the listen. I think definitely worth the time. Um, I love that Vala has been a part of the Salesforce Ohana as a customer long before he was an employee since Mm -hmm. the infancy uh, or toddlerhood of Salesforce. And it was just a few years old. So that was a great story to hear. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Well said, Stacey. Awesome. So, um, yeah, you guys enjoy this story. And Vala says that he will come back and chat with us again. So that's awesome. Um, Feel free to message Justice and I with uh, topics that you'd like to hear us discuss with Vala or with future guests. Absolutely. And if you like what you hear in this episode, please like, please share, please retweet. Um, There may be somebody else out there that can gain information from this interview with Vala Afshar. Awesome. Today we have uh, Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist, joining us here on the Campfire Stories podcast. Vala, thank you for joining us. Justice, Stacey. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Mm-hmm. Vala, uh, just jumping right in, you know, uh, just as I was speaking and, and introducing you with, with your title here with Salesforce, uh, maybe for our audience, could you give us some background on your role today with Salesforce, um, how you came into Salesforce, and what were some of the experiences um, that positioned you to ultimately uh, step in as the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce? Sure. I, uh, I, I studied electrical engineering uh, in undergrad and graduate school. So my first job out of college was a software developer. And I spent uh, the first uh, 10 years of my career in engineering. And uh, somewhere towards the latter part of my engineering career, I started to uh, work closely with our customer service and support department. Uh, We were a technology company producing networking infrastructure, data center switching, routing, wireless and software security products. And I was the vice president of software and hardware quality. So my team was responsible for making sure we built world-class quality products. And in order to uh, to really better appreciate and, and strengthen our, our quality practice, I started working with our customers, which meant collaborating with our customer service and support. And in 2003, so I'm going back, you know, 15 years ago, the CEO of the company asked me to run uh, services as well as engineering. And that's my first introduction to customer relationship management. Uh, as I started to dig deep and understand the art and science of running service and support, um, this meant managing call centers, professional services, maintenance, maintenance portfolio, educational services, which at the time, all of this represented about a third of our company's revenue. Uh, I realized that we needed a CRM, uh, customer relationship management. So uh, as part of a small team, uh, we went and researched companies that provided CRM solutions. And 15 years ago, a small team and I selected Salesforce to be our CRM provider. And uh, I use, uh, my team and I used Salesforce from 2003 up to two years ago when I decided to join Salesforce. So, uh, you know, about 12 or 13 years as a Salesforce customer and customer in, in, in engineering, in service and support. And then my last uh, work assignment before joining Salesforce. I was a chief marketing officer. So I had the, the privilege of leveraging Salesforce platform across multiple lines of business. And, uh, you know, obviously I love the company. I love the core values. Uh, I, I thought the innovation was incredible. And, uh, and along the career journey of transitioning from engineering to customer service support to finally marketing, 
Uh, I also was practicing all along the ability to share the story of how we used the CRM platform. In fact, I wrote a book about how to use Salesforce in the enterprise in 2012. And then I accidentally... What was the title of that book? Sorry. It was uh, Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And the reason I chose social business is the premise was how to use CRM to humanize your business. And I placed a strong emphasis on community building, the use of chatter technology, and ultimately creating a 360 view of the customer across sales, service, marketing, and IT, which I felt were the two, four core pillars of really developing uh, you know, business excellence and growing your revenue and retaining customers and so on and so forth. Um, the book was a result of accidentally discovering social. I, 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 I accidentally discovered Twitter. I started, I started sharing uh, my company's story and, and use of Salesforce. And a publisher found me on Twitter and, and they convinced me to write a book. Uh, and the book led to blogs. And by the time I expressed interest in terms of joining Salesforce, uh, the president of uh, products at the time uh, thought that uh, you know I could continue to be a storyteller, a connector, and as someone who was a practitioner for well over a decade, I could you know lend some of my lessons learned and experiences with our customers and partners and anyone else who was really interested in changing the world using using CRM. So so that was that. So that was my journey, and that's what I do today. Chief digital evangelist, you know, great title. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what I try to do is, is be a connector, be a storyteller, learn from our customers mm-hmm. and partners and the community as a whole, because the, the luxury I have of being in the engineering side of, of Salesforce is that when I have a customer share enhancement opportunities for our products and services, I take that right back to the folks that are responsible for building our solutions so, you know, any customer that engages with me is one step away from talking to the folks that are actually building our, our platform. And, 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 and mm-hmm. I, we believe thought leadership exists in the field. So we innovate because I think we do a better job than most companies in terms of listening to our customers and, and building things that they actually need and can use. Wow. I love it. I love the... Um you know, your focus on being a storyteller. And that's a lot of what this podcast is about is giving a microphone to storytellers and, you know, hearing the stories of people within Salesforce or Salesforce users and, you know, hear their journey with Trailhead, with, uh, you know, just learning in general. And um, so, you know, this is, perfect for one of our first episodes that we would have you to be able to share your story and hopefully it'll be an inspiration for others to join and share their stories as well. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, Vala, Vala, that's great. And I appreciate, um, you know, that level of detail. You know, I wanted to go back a little bit to, you mentioned that your former organization just got, just coming in there and somewhat evaluating uh, the landscape of needs for uh, the continual growth of your of your organization uh, from a, from just a, a process perspective in achieving you know business excellence. Help me understand a little bit how when you were in the process of saying okay we need to basically identify a, a CRM solution. How did you come about in identifying Salesforce? Were there other CRMs that were considered? If so, what distinguished Salesforce? Um, from uh, from the other CRMs you might have considered, and uh, lastly, I would say on top of that, did you guys come uh, from spreadsheets? Is that was was that what your CRM was um, at at that given moment in time? Yeah, I mean it's important to put things in perspective. Remember, in two thousand three, when we were evaluating CRM, Salesforce was only four years old. So you know, mm-hmm. it's, the company was founded in nineteen ninety nine. So for us, for me, evaluating a vendor, um, and this is lesson learned through the course of my career, is you look for multiple dimensions of capabilities and, 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 and mindset. Um, when you think about uh, innovative companies, and you know, you are, you're both familiar with Salesforce, so this is not 
you know, breaking news. But, you know, for the last several years, Salesforce has been named by multiple entities as one of the most innovative companies in the world. If not, in fact, number one most innovative company and Forbes listed our company the most innovative over the last 10 years. Um, so when I so when I advise CXOs in terms of identifying companies to grow their businesses, to delight their customers, I, I, I want them to look with a critical eye in terms of inspecting, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the vendor, the solution provider across multiple dimensions. So let's think about Salesforce just historically and, uh, you know, having an Amazon-like CRM experience, meaning a true uh, uh, software-as-a-service, metadata, multi-tenant solution in 1999 was incredible technology innovation. Again, uh, you know, the debate in terms of on-premise and cloud continues to happen today, but far less uh, friction than it was, you know, 15 years ago when we were looking uh, at, at, at Salesforce. But so that was one dimension of innovation, technology innovation, because this was a pure cloud, true cloud uh, solution where you didn't have to invest in CapEx, capital expenditures and on-site. You didn't have to fire up servers and clients and have an army of IT. As long as you had internet access, you could turn on and, and start using the solution. So that was one. The second dimension was uh, a new business model innovation because to pay as you go, a license model where you had user-based licensing and you could pay as much as you needed and then pay more as your businesses grow that was incredibly innovative. I mean, today we're in the subscription economy, but you go back 20 years ago, it was unbelievable to think of a pricing model that focused on, on license-based subscription model. Then you look at the 111 uh, giving model, the philanthropic model, and as you pick a solution provider, you want to understand their heart and soul. You want to understand their core beliefs. Like Simon Sinek said, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do what you do. And when you think about the 111 model, which now you have over 5,000 organizations that have adopted the 1% pledge, that was incredible innovation in terms of giving. Now, so that's three dimensions. When you think about the ecosystem that Salesforce built around the app exchange, most people don't know that the app store was actually trademarked by Salesforce in 2005. When Steve Jobs announced their app store in 2008, one year after the iPhone was introduced, our founder, Mark Benioff, was generous enough to gift the trademark app store to Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs had mentored him in 2002 in terms of the importance of building a community. So the, the world's largest enterprise app store today, which is the App Exchange, used to be called the App Store, which we gifted to Apple. But that was another incredible innovation because out of the gate, when you use Salesforce, if there are certain features and functions that may not be there, you now have over 3,000 enterprise apps built by some of the best and brightest uh, developers in the world and companies in the world that, that seamlessly integrate with your solution. So now you have your fourth dimension of uh, you know, building an ecosystem and community. Then the fifth was what you just mentioned, Stacy Trailhead. The notion that a company will mm -hmm. invest incredible amount of, you know, manpower, dollars, infrastructure spend to build uh, a, a gamified online free curriculum to help educate st mm -hmm. stakeholders was incredible learning and education uh, innovation model. So in combination, mm -hmm. when we think about building uh, or, or building your short list of who you're going to partner with. I, ch I challenge executives to think about it, not just based on the product and roadmap and legacy of innovation, but think about whether this organization that you're about to partner with has had a history of being forward-looking and, and, and creating disruptive innovation that, has, that scales across multiple dimensions. And, and when, I, when I think about all the accolades that Salesforce receives... And the funny thing is, of all the innovation, um, disruptive innovation that I've mentioned, technology, business model, philanthropy, uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, and, and learning, which is the five that I mentioned, I actually believe the sixth uh, innovation, which most people may not know about unless they've read Mark's book, uh, is the most important and, in fact, uh, most impactful 
um, reason we've been successful, and that's our V2 mom. Uh, we have a process where all 31,000 employees at Salesforce share their vision, their values, their methods, their obstacles, and their measurements. That's called V2 mom, vision, value, method, obstacle, and measurements. And on an annual basis, the founders develop their V2 mom, and it cascades all the way down to an intern that would have joined us you know, yesterday would have a V2 mom as part of their onboarding process. Have you ever worked for a company where 31,000 employees at any point uh, using Chatter can look at a V2 mom of anyone in the organization to, to better understand what their goals and their object, objectives are for the next 12 months? So that's radical transparency that I've never experienced in my 20 years of working profession in any other company. And what that means is mm-hmm. that... That's really. Um, yeah, go ahead, Justin. If you have a question, please. No, I was just, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say no. That you know, having experience, being, being uh, fortunate to work for numerous Fortune 500 companies, uh, just here in the Minneapolis mm-hmm. Twin City area, I have never, ever seen or been exposed to that level of uh, transparency, violence. So I, I mean, that's wow. Yeah, no, so it's amazing. Right, and I, and I've had the experience on the other end that I've worked with several startup and smaller businesses and, and still even with smaller companies, you don't necessarily have that level of transparency, nor do you allow that level of input from all different levels. So, um, so it is radical um, and beneficial, but from all levels of businesses. Absolutely. And you know, when we talk about, and you've heard the term Ohana use, if you've dealt with Salesforce mm-hmm. and, any capacity, the word family. When you think about family, you think about trust, you think about transparency, you think about, and I often tweet, you're not a team because you work together, you're a team because you trust, care, and you respect each other. And, you know, the the, the notion that someone anywhere in the world at Salesforce will email me or chat to me saying, Vala, I just looked at your V2 mom. Part of your V2 mom says you want to do a, a number of keynotes. Well, I have an opportunity in Minneapolis for you to do a keynote. I think this can help your V2 mom. Are you interested? It's not just trust and, 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 and transparency. It's also respect. People ask you to do things when they believe that the ask is aligned with your mission, your goals, and your objectives. So what this allows is a company like Salesforce to grow from you know, 5,000 five years ago to over 30,000 today and not drift away from our core values and guiding principles. It's not just to have radical trust and transparency, it's to have alignment. Because when you talk about execution velocity, which is key to being successful, it's important to understand speed and direction, definition of velocity. So V2Mom helps us all be aligned and over time continue to improve our execution Velocity. So again, I've mentioned a number of uh, uh, you know innovation, technology, business model, uh, ecosystem, learning, philanthropy. But I say how we manage our talent is also, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest uh, you know uh, p- innovation uh, that, that that's been born out of Salesforce. And I don't think we talk enough about it. Uh, uh, but but it's certainly something that I've experienced over the last two years here, and I and I, and I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Vala, that's that's you know it's it's interesting because you know you I had a, a conversation once I had an opportunity to have a conversation once with uh with a CEO here in, in the Minneapolis area uh, for a very very large size organization and some of the feedback that was given to me was that Justice I can't manage you know X amount of people uh, encompassing the entire organization what I can do is I can ensure that the cultural dynamics of how the organization is operating is conducive for the growth of the business forward thinking. Um, and I, I think as I think about Salesforce and, you know, we've all seen it if you're on Twitter or LinkedIn, all of the, just the, the numerous accolades Salesforce is receiving in the areas of innovation, creativity, exemplary leadership with Mark Benioff. These are some of the stories and examples that you're sharing right now that we don't have direct insight into but just by you sharing them right now, it's it's giving advocacy and sponsorship as to how those accolades are even coming into uh, fruition, right? So I mean, just a story about um, 
the V2 mom. You know, that that's resonating with me significantly just due to the fact of the intern that comes in, uh, you know, Monday morning next week is going to feel a part of the Ohana, as you mentioned it, immediately uh, alongside, you know, Parker Harris or Mark Benioff that have been there since 1999 and, and there before. So it's, it, it, it's giving some valued insight as to how Salesforce has been uh, successful uh, thus far in, in, in multiple areas and facets. So I, I appreciate that transparency. No, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to share the story. I, I think, you know, collectively, uh, all three of us have, have, have worked, as, as, as you mentioned, small companies, large companies. And, um, you know, I, and, and, and so when I think about success factors, and, and I've been in technology my whole career, I put the tools and the technology last in terms of success factors. I believe that culture and talent and, and, and process uh, these are all elements that you have to get right, um, and and that's how you optimize the use of of the technologies that's provided to you. Um, so it's important to stay teachable. It's it's important to grow your skill set, but if you're in an environment that doesn't have a healthy growth mindset culture, if you don't have the right talent, if you have heavy processes where you have you're dealing with internal politics and bureaucracy, and you're not moving as fast as the industry uh, and society as a whole then, um, you know, the best technology in the world will not help you reach full potential. So it's, it's a combination of things. And I'm going to go back to your question in terms of analyzing companies. So I, I mentioned one advice I give to executives is make sure you have a strategic partner. And strategic partner means important alignment in terms of culture, the talent, the folks that you, do you trust them, do you believe they care for you and your customers, in addition to having world-class product. Obviously, you can't, you can't shortcut uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the features, functions, and the quality of the product and service you have. Um, but, you know, I, I also think about when I advise companies in order to assess where they are in their digital transformation journey, um, and it really comes down to their maturity level of using data. Um, you mentioned, you know, did you have Excel you know, before Salesforce CRM, we had from sticky, sticky notes to people's memories to, to Excel <laughs> to a homegrown system. It was a hodgepodge of different things um, to help us manage. And this is was a, this was a half a billion dollar revenue company, so it wasn't a small company. And uh, and uh, you know, with 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 you know, hundreds of call center staff and so on and so forth, uh, separ- uh, spread across seven call centers around the globe. Uh, so even though it was a, it was an enterprise, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have uh, a, a single source of truth or, or a scalable, uh, meaningful CRM uh, that we shared across the lines lines of business. Um, and we brought sales and service at the same time in 2003. But the important part was assessing the maturity of an organization, in and in terms of how they use data. The fir- the first question most individuals teams, organization, businesses try to answer is what happened. So if you're a service organization, you may typically go to a, you know, maybe it's a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, a quarterly business review, and you have these charts and graphs that describe your performance and you compare it versus last quarter or last year to try to show certain trends about the past. So you're answering the question, what happened? Uh, This is called descriptive use of analytics. You're describing the past. Now, once you describe what happened and you compare it to the past, it's natural for your audience and stakeholders to ask, well, why did this happen? Whether it's a positive trend or negative trend, it could be your lead conversions are accelerating in marketing. It could be your sales opportunities are closing faster. It could be your net promoter scores decline in service. No matter what key performance indicator you're reporting against, people want to know why things happen. So this is called diagnostic use of analytics. So descriptive, describe the past, why did it happen, uh, diagnostic. Now, when you're good at diagnosing and root causing why things happen, naturally your stakeholder... Well, let me ask you a quick quick, quick clarification, sure. sorry. For those that are not well-versed on uh, these terms, would you say that these these approaches fall, fall within the umbrella of technologies considered under artificial intelligence, or is this a complete separate... Uh, approach for, uh, I think you call it descriptive analytics. Yeah. So, so what artificial intelligence um, and 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 think of it as um, 
an umbrella artificial intelligence uh, underneath it you have different disciplines like machine learning uh, as an example or or neural networks deep, deep learning, learning and so on and so forth so what yeah. artificial intelligence enables companies to do to, is to scale this construct that I'm that I'm sharing with you and and automate and scale at a and and at a much higher uh, rate and velocity. So as you think about describing the past, as you think about diagnosing your uh, your, uh, your 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 data, then you graduate to try to answer what will happen tomorrow. So you go from what happened in the past to why did it happen. And now the next question is, given what I know about the past and why things happened, can I predict what will happen tomorrow? So this is where you start using algorithms to detect and, and determine and forecast what may happen tomorrow. Here's one universal truth. All the data we have, all the data we have is from the past. You have no data about tomorrow. What you have is models and algorithms that try to predict tomorrow based on the data you have from present moment, today, right now, and the past. So algorithms are used to predict tomorrow. And organizations for the last many, many, many decades have tried to define these algorithms, manually implement these algorithms, and try to determine what may happen. So you see in sales forecasting, as an example, or any initiatives that happen in any lines of business will ultimately use predictive use of analytics to improve over time. Now, the holy grail of maturity in terms of using data is when you can predict what might happen tomorrow and then prescribe the actions you need to take right now to make tomorrow a reality. So if you're a marketeer or mm -hmm. you're a service mm -hmm. professional or you're in sales, if your CRM success platform can say, Stacy, today these are the five opportunities that you need to focus on because they're the five most likely opportunities you can close within the fiscal month or fiscal quarter, or justice. These are mm -hmm. 20 open cases in your call center. These are the four that you need to immediately action because we're going to potentially have customer churn. This could affect our sales pipeline. This could affect our net promoter score. So when this system is smart enough to prescribe to you next best action, that's when you can create these incredible capabilities and disrupt the industry and delight your customers. So you go from descriptive use of analytics to diagnostic use of analytics to predictive use of analytics to finally prescriptive use of analytics where the system is augmenting your intelligence and prescribing the thing you need to do today in order to make sure your forecast of tomorrow will come to fruition. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a very simple example. Six years ago, this is before using machine learning and, and, and AI with Salesforce. Uh, my team and I decided that we're going to predict customer temperature by looking at the last 12 months of contact history into our business. So we said, uh, and this is, again, we were selling network infrastructure. So it was a combination of hardware products and software products. We said, if somebody has to unrack a piece of hardware and put it in a box and ship it to us while we ship you a new one because of a failing component, that's a painful touch point. That's, you know, you have to unwrap the, the device, put it in a box, UPX, FedEx it. So we looked at that touch point as a painful touch point. Then we looked at if you called our contact center asking for how to configure something. That's not a painful, that's more of an educational touch point. So we looked at what I consider freshman undergraduate math. This isn't data science. This isn't graduate level. This is math 101 in grad school, in undergrad, maybe even honors level high school math if you're a senior. It's called a weighted sum, a weighted sum regression algorithm. Um, weighted sum regression. So you weight each of the, uh, the, the, the data points and you add up those weights and you normalize it to, to, a, to a value. For us, the value was between zero to 100. 100 was a hot temperature, zero was a cool temperature. So just think about a temperature gauge going from cool, warm, and hot. The first thing our service agent saw when you contacted our call center, whether it was through social or email or phone, was a temperature gauge where we guessed the customer's temperature. If the customer temperature guess was hot, we did not spend our normal amount of time trying to resolve the issue with our frontline staff 
we looked at our service level agreements and we modified them so that if a hot customer would contact us, we would immediately escalate to our engineers, to our developers. I was the chief customer officer. If it was a hot customer and they had a large opportunity in our sales forecast, I had a service level agreement where within eight hours, I had to make contact with the executive at the customer to ensure we were fixing the customer before we fixed the problem. So by having these dynamic service level agreements, we had now prescriptive use of analytics. We would prescribe different set of actions depending on our prediction of the customer temperature. I bet out of the 100 companies that we do business today, maybe one or two have that capability. And this has nothing to do with artificial intelligence. Now, the good news is today, artificial intelligence can determine sentiment and intent where anybody using Einstein Mm -hmm, Service mm -hmm. Cloud has the ability to adjust their service level, level agreements based on our prediction of customer sentiment. But this was being done with my team six years ago with just rudimentary math. The point is that when a platform is extensible, when you have open APIs, when you have an app exchange, the art of the possible in terms of thinking about your maturity level of using data to be proactive and to prescribe the very best action immediately so that what you, what you anticipate for tomorrow will be all good outcomes. That's all about having the right talent, the right mindset, asking the right questions, and then having a system that can support mm-hmm. your ambition. And, and, that's, and so it's not all about big data and AI and all the incredibly fancy emerging technology we hear about the fourth industrial revolution. It's going back to the fundamentals and making sure you don't settle for the, the, you know, the perfect answer to the wrong questions and that you take a very critical point of view in terms of what are the capabilities I need to develop in order to exceed my customers' expectations. And in order for you to exceed expectations, you have to have a preventative, proactive approach in how you sell, how you market, and how you service your customers. And that requires really, again, culture, talent, process, and technology. So, well, so that's that's an interesting point. Let's talk about that a little bit here. So you mentioned big data and AI. And what I find interesting about these topics is obviously – AI is nothing new, right? I mean, the, the concept was founded back in 1956, I believe it was, but sometime in the 1950s. But when you look at, uh, you mentioned being in the fourth industrial revolution today, which we're in, but when you look at the amount of data that's been created in just the last several years, I mean, the, the, the percentage breakdown is 90% of the world's data today was created within the last several years. So I think the conversation around emerging technologies, uh, i.e., artificial intelligence is probably catalyzing due to the fact that in, or, in order for AI to truly serve as a catalyst, you need to have an abundance of data. So when you think of machine learning, deep learning, you can really delve in and understand what that data means. I think one of the things I'd like to hear your perspective on is data integrity as a conversation. Was that a challenge um, back, back with what you were doing at your former organization with the uh, um, the rudimentary approaches as you as you mentioned it, or was that was data? I, I feel like data integrity is a continuous uh, problem as it relates to extrapolating how we move forward, right? Um, prescriptively, is that something you were faced with? Every or no? company is challenged with uh, data quality. The problem is uh, much easier to solve today than than when my journey started implementing CRM in two thousand three, but. As soon as you recognize that data integrity is as much a cultural issue as anything else, again, uh, we all know what we do. Some of us know how we do it, but we don't spend enough time and energy explaining why we do what we do. When I saw that we had data quality issues in service organization, the, the challenge was very quickly identified and resolved when we got the entire team together and we explained why these fields that we have in our CRM, why they are there and what purpose they serve. So as an example, when a deal would get pushed out of a fiscal quarter, we had a counter that said every time a deal wasn't closed within a fiscal quarter, that's a 90-day period for most publicly traded companies, we would have a counter. So, uh, And we found out, for example, analyzing our sales data, that any time the counter was three, which 
the deal was over 270 days, three times 90, we had less than 5% chance of closing the deal. So we would go to our mm-hmm. account executives and say, we are now looking at this counter because historically when deals sit in our forecast for a long period, we don't have, we don't do a good job of closing the deal, winning the business. So when you come to the forecast meeting and you say this deal is in a commit stage, which by definition usually means 90% likelihood of closing within a fiscal quarter and the counter is at five, mm-hmm. we would tell the account executive, we're going to look at your commit and compare it to our historical performance. And we expect you to explain to us why you think you're going to win when historically we have less than 5% chance of winning. And so the, these right. field, when, when, when your stakeholders understand what reporting and what algorithm dependencies and how the business is going to use the information they have to create insights that can lead to actions, timely actions, then people take more care and they nurture the, 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 the content that they put into the system and share with the rest of the stakeholders. I often believe companies that struggle with data quality didn't put the time and energy or burn enough calories to really help the stakeholders understand the value and the effort that's required to run a world-class business. Uh, there are plenty of tools that can scrub your database and over time, they could even fill, uh, you know, you can, you can work with a number of third-party organizations that can give you firmographic data. In fact, so data about a firm. I don't know. I may have just made up a word, firmographic data. But, but, uh, but <laughs> wait. Infographic, yeah, no, maybe? No, I, I, I meant firmographic. <laughs> I just don't know if it's a word or not. But, uh, but no, okay. uh, <laughs> it is. So, 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 for example, um, when you're trying to sell to a company and there's a change in management, do you have that insight so that you can tweak your forecast? If the company was right-sizing, whether they're adding employees or subtracting employees, do you have that insight in real time? Are you looking at their stock, uh, stock, the health of their stock to see if that's going to impact their budget? Are you looking at any strategic announcements they've made with other companies in, in your industry to understand the influence and in how you sell or uh, sell or market to them? So a lot of stakeholders in sales and marketing today are leveraging firmographic data to tweak and tune how they engage with a stakeholder or a prospect or, or an existing customer. So the CRM platform is this living entity that's providing you insights. And again, with AI, the promise of it is this mass personalization at scale because you can look at these trends through an iterative model and discover things that you can. it's impossible for you to do manually. And I'll give you a very simple example. In the B2B space, in the B2B space, the average buying decision team is eight individuals. So eight different personas. For some, it could be 10. For some, it could be two. On average, it's around eight. Each eight personas have a different buying process map. All three of us are social business leaders. So I suspect when we look at to invest, investigate companies we want to do business with, we'll independently research them. We'll look at their social stream. We'll collaborate with other social like-minded leaders. So a lot of that work is done independently. Traditional non-social executives will invite vendors, will go to conferences. They're less inclined to research and, and look at you know, the digital activities around a company. Imagine having to deliver the right content across the right channel at the right time to the right person for an average of eight different personas for one company. Tell me how a marketeer today can do that manually. The answer is impossible, impossible. Unless you have a customer journey that's automated, integrated with machine learning capabilities, whereby you can look at the content mm-hmm. that you're producing and deliver it, again, across the right channel at the right time to the right persona, and do that before the purchase, during the purchase, and after the purchase. Because a how-to implement best practice is not something you're interested in before the purchase, but something you're definitely interested in once you mm-hmm. make the purchase. So, so the reason behind the investments in AI with Salesforce, the reason behind Trailhead, the reason behind all of what we do in terms of MVPs and communities and all this culture of inclusiveness that exists is because it's it's really hard <laughs> to to graduate from what I had mentioned, the, the descriptive <laughs> to, to diagnostic to predictive to prescriptive data. So you mm-hmm. need systems and talent and culture to help companies compete in ways. Exactly. Facilitate exactly. So mm-hmm. 
Well, let me ask you a question, changing paces here quick. Um, you mentioned Trailhead. Uh, so let me let me just uh, illustrate a picture here. So Vala's in Boston. He's traveling back to home, wherever home is. Um, get off the plane. You call for your Uber ride. It picks you up, brings you home. You walk in. Uh, you sit down at your office. You open up your laptop and log into Trailhead. Sure. Are you a trailer? Okay. How many uh, how many how many badges do you have today? Just just kind of organically oh, going I have down no that idea. path. That's a that's a great question. If I if I had to guess, okay. I'd say forty, but but I'm guessing. Um, okay. I'm guessing. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. I, do do any stand out as ones that you've really uh, learned something from, or you know, I guess what's your favorite oh, badge that question. you've? That's a great question. Gotten so far? Um, I couldn't. You know, ask, I couldn't answer this when Mike Garrel asked me last year. I couldn't. Answer. I couldn't think of. I couldn't think of the name I, of it. I looked at. I. I my, my last. Uh, I was looking at some of the Fourth Industrial Revolution uh, badges and and modules. Module. Yeah. Again, I. A lot of the time, I'm in front of customers. They're asking me about. You know, what is the, the first day of Dreamforce was all about? Uh, you know, World in, uh, World Economic Forum and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. What does that mean? What's the impact for? my company, my line of business. So, you know, being able to articulate a concise message, I thought that, that the trailhead that talked about responsive, responsible leadership and also the various technology components, because it can be overwhelming uh, when you break it down to AI and IoT and blockchain and 3D printing and, of course, cloud mobile and social, augmented virtual reality, autonomous cars, 5G networking, quantum computing. If you, in fact, just look at this consumer electronics show, Twitter stream just for the last two days. Everything I just mentioned, all those technologies are interwoven into consumer products that are coming to market. So, so you know, I think that's the, the one of the modules that sticks in my mind is being able to, being able to, you know, uh, uh, connect the dots, and then you know not be overwhelmed with the tsunami of emerging tech uh, and the disruptive nature of the technology and how it's impacting. Uh, business. Uh, you know, the example Justice just used was Uber. You know, six years ago, I, the, the, uh, Travis, the CEO of Uber on Twitter, was looking to hire uh, employees into his company. And today, the company is uh, worth $80 billion. Uh, so, so, and they don't own any assets. Uh, so, think about combining mobile, social, and cloud. And essentially creating a data company, not a not a transportation company per se, because they don't own any vehicles or assets. Same thing can be said about Airbnb. They don't own any real estate. Same thing can be said about Facebook. What does Facebook own or what does YouTube own? Some of the biggest, most valuable entities mm-hmm. in the world now just simply leverage emerging technology and are really data companies. Um, so, so most companies have to think like a software company. And really benchmark their performance like like you know like a digital native, a company that's born in the cloud, mobile, and social. Trailhead is an example. So education is not a guarantee for you to go from A to B. It's more of a passport. It gives you the right to explore and have the privilege of working. Uh, you know whether it's a community or, or 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 an organization or company. Justice, when you start your new role at Wells Fargo. It's the education and information is giving you the right, a passport, where now you can work with one of the largest companies in the world, a Fortune 10 company, uh, and, and, and really, you know, uh, as Steve Jobs said, put a dent in the universe. Um, so it's critically important to stay teachable because your passport will be requiring stamps along your career journey. Uh, it's not a guarantee, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's uh, I think, the most important skill uh, you can have is is uh, is is the ability to have a as as we've said before at Salesforce a beginner's mindset, one that's free of prejudice, mm-hmm. one that's hungry, one that's open, one that's curious. And I also think when I think about Trailhead, I think about it's your digital CV. Trailhead is your digital resume. Um, in 2013, mm-hmm. I stopped collecting resumes to hire people into my company. So my first, uh, the, my first candidate that I hired without looking at their resume it was a six-figure salary. In fact, you know, when it was all said and done, it was, uh, it was a, a position that, that was over 200 and maybe 250000 in in salary bonus and, and options. 
and uh, I, I never looked at a resume. I went on Twitter. I created a hashtag social CV and, an, and I announced I'm hiring a six-figure salary marketeer and I'm not accepting any resumes. You have two weeks to apply. And you could only be considered if you use the hashtag social CV. Ended up having over 500 candidates. We reduced it to about 14 candidates that we invited to meet in person. Again, I didn't look at their CVs. And uh, the hire was so successful that from 2013 until I joined Salesforce, I never looked at a resume again. So your, your curriculum mm-hmm. vitae, your resume, is your digital footprint plus your digital exhaust. Trailhead is your digital footprint, things that mm-hmm. I can Google and search and find out about you. Uh, digital exhaust is those unintended consequence of things you leave behind. So don't, be, don't hurry up and hashtag fail a company or a person every time you have a bad experience. Don't be a, tr- don't be a troll. Don't be pessimistic. Don't, don't be a bully. Uh, you know, don't curse. Don't use profanity. Don't, you know, uh, live a recommendable life and know that every periscope, every picture, every Instagram, every comment that you share is accessible mm-hmm. by, a, by mm-hmm. HR and by an employer. And uh, I can't tell you uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of candidates that on their paper resume, they were wonderful. Uh, but we discounted them uh, in terms of being part of our, uh, you know, community and company because they didn't have a, the right fit, cultural fit, and and they didn't have the right EQ, not IQ, to be part of part of the team. So, so th- this is why I think the promise of Trailhead mm-hmm. and micro credentials and and just digital persona will ultimately shape your future. And, and I guarantee you, future mm-hmm. employers will look at Justice picking up a. You know, a two hundred and forty dollar grocery bill of a, of a random person. <laughs> you yeah. too. Yeah. And it's funny. You may mm-hmm. not, you may not know that people know because not everybody engages with you every time in real time. But I promise you, everybody sees everything. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's important to keep it's yeah, important to keep point. that in mind. It's true. It's true. Um, it was. In 2016 at Midwest Dreaming that I had the first moment of, um, I got a Twitter notification that somebody had tagged me in a post and it was a picture of a crowded room and they said, oh my goodness, look, I found Stacy. And, you know, they tagged me in it. And um, to be honest, I didn't know who the person was, uh, but, you know, but it was people are watching. And, um, and then it happened again at Dreamforce, just, you know, this past November, um, watching Apex and the Limits. And then afterwards, uh, actually a Salesforce employee came up and we're having a conversation and they knew who I was. And uh, it wasn't even necessarily that they're online, but that um, they were part of a program that was watching for certain keywords and hashtags and stuff being used on social media. So, um, so to your point, whether people are engaging or not, people are watching, companies are watching, and um, and that digital exhaust Absolutely. doesn't go away. So, um, so I, you and I had a, a brief conversation at Dreamforce, and and that was the piece that I took away and remembered the most was your uh, mention of the digital yeah, exhaust. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say quick too. Um, you know, just even being a millennial here at Bala and Stacey, you know, it's it's easy for me uh, when I'm looking to better understand an organization or understanding, you know, just you brought up Wells Fargo. One of the first things I did is I said, Alexa, tell me mm-hmm. about Wells Fargo, right? So I'm trying to understand what is out there uh, in terms of being accessible public information um, with an organization because obviously you're forming a synergy, you're forming, forming a partnership before you join yeah. an organization. But at the same time, if you're going to be public and, and all over social media platforms, we do live in a day and age where everyone's, well, most people have a Instagram and a Facebook and a Snapchat and these things. Well, if the narrative to your life doesn't align with what is on your LinkedIn profile in tandem with what is on your Facebook and Twitter and whatever, then you're, I mean, you're essentially setting yourself up to fail. And I, you're one of the few leaders I see out there, not just in Salesforce, but just in the, um, in the realm of, of working professionals that understands the significant value associated with brand recognition and, and, and how are you positioning yourself based on, because you're right, everyone's going to have a digital footprint, uh, probably here in the next several years. So I appreciate you calling that out. Trailhead is one of them. 
I actually have Trailhead reflected on my LinkedIn. <laughs> terrific. Terrific. That's terrific. Yeah, no, I, I li- you know, give without expecting a get, live a recommendable life. Uh, and uh, it's always better to be kind and clever. I, you know, don't, don't, you know, I think the people that are, people that I know personally that are good people, if you're good in life, you'll be great in social. Um, and, uh, and be patient. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it takes, uh, it takes a lot of hard work to build, um, uh, uh, what is ultimately a, the only universal currency that you have, and that's your reputation. Um, what you know, you can build a great reputation inside a company by having skills that are specific to the company products and service. But when you go to another company, that may not be transferable skill. Just because you're a great, you know, uh, um, a Java programmer in one organization, or you you're a great CRM for marketing in one organization, but now you're doing services CRM in another, those skill sets may not be always transferable, but your reputation will always go with you. So as you're going through training mm-hmm. yourself and, mm-hmm. and as you're an active member of a community like you two, mentoring others and, and sharing your knowledge for the betterment of the community, uh, just you know, keep in mind your digital footprint and your digital exhaust because um, it's definitely, in my humble opinion, the number one factor in terms of your growth potential and your career opportunities, you know, in the future. I, my interview with Salesforce was mostly on direct message on Twitter, just to give you context. Um, I, re- I, you know, I reached out and we had most of the conversation until I received my acceptance letter uh, on DM on Twitter. So just giving you a sense of, you know, the progressive nature of Salesforce <laughs> and wow. the importance of digital footprint. So. If it makes you if it makes you feel any better, Vala, my uh, not a lot of people know this, but the, the relationship that I've uh, formed with Tony Profit all started on That's Twitter amazing. DM. That's amazing, literally. And it went from there to not you know we talk, we check in, we consider each other friends. I've met his wife, but it literally a significant of what I learned about him and what he learned about me. That's Twitter. that's fantastic. But right when he started with Salesforce, so uh, it's you're that's right. a privilege you're for right. both Tony and you. That's great. I love hearing that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Cool. Well, Vala, we so appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us for a little bit and share some of your wisdom and a few of your stories. This was was great. Um, I really enjoyed it. I know Justice did as well. Um, you are very active on LinkedIn and also on Twitter. Your handle for those who are not yet connected, although you have a, a ton of followers. Um, so for anybody that's wanting to connect with you, your yes. handle is yes. your name. Exactly. Before we conclude this podcast, I want to, I think a lot of our viewers will will appreciate the response on this. Vala, are you actively tweeting or do you have something set up that tweets sometimes? Uh No, I'm active. I'm actively tweeting, but I have lots and lots of, um, um, I was going to call it best practice, but I'm hesitant to call it that because I change my, um, my, my methodology almost on an annual basis. Uh, but we can save that for another uh, podcast. I have, I have lots. <laughs> I could probably write a book on how to effectively use uh, uh, social media. But, um, but no, I'm, 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 actively, I'm actively on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and that sounds like a good excuse to bring you back at a later date. And um, I'm sure everyone would love to hear more from you, especially on For the sure, social to. aspect. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vala. Have a great week, guys.